Book five, chapters eight and nine of On the Education of an Orator by Quintilian, translated by H. E. Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eight. The second class of proofs are wholly the work of art, and consist of matters specially adapted to produce belief. They are, however, as a rule, almost entirely neglected, or only very lightly touched on by those who, avoiding arguments as rugged and repulsive things, confine themselves to pleasanter regions, and, like those who, as poets tell, were bewitched by tasting a magic herb in the land of the lotus-eaters, or by the song of the sirens, into preferring pleasure to safety, follow the empty semblance of renown, and are robbed of that victory which is the aim of eloquence. And yet those other forms of eloquence, which have a more continuous sweep and flow, are employed with a view to assisting and embellishing the agreements, and produce the appearance of superinducing a body upon the sinews on which the whole case rests. Thus, if it is asserted that some act has been committed under the influence of anger, fear, or desire, we may expatiate at some length on the nature of each of these passions. It is by these same methods that we praise, accuse, exaggerate, attenuate, describe, deter, complain, console, or exhort. But such rhetorical devices may be employed in connection with matters about which there is no doubt, or at least which we speak of as admitted facts. Nor would I deny that there is some advantage to be gained by pleasing our audience, and a great deal by stirring their emotions. Still, all these devices are more effective when the judge thinks he has gained a full knowledge of the facts of the case, which we can only give him by argument, and by the employment of every other known means of proof. Before, however, I proceed to classify the various species of artificial proof, I must point out that there are certain features common to all kinds of proof, for there is no question which is not concerned either with things or persons, nor can there be any ground for argument save in connection with matters concerning things or persons, which may be considered either by themselves or with reference to something else. While there can be no proof except such as is derived from things consequent or things opposite, which must be sought for either in the time preceding, contemporaneous with, or subsequent to the alleged fact, nor can any single thing be proved save by reference to something else which must be greater less than or equal to it as regards arguments they may be found either in the questions raised by the case which may be considered by themselves quite apart from any connection with individual things or persons or in the case of itself when anything is discovered in it which cannot be arrived at by the light of common reason but is peculiar to the subject on which judgment has to be given further all proofs fall into three classes necessary, credible, and not impossible. Again, there are four forms of proof. First, we may argue that, because one thing is, another thing is not, as, it is they, and therefore not night. Secondly, we may argue that, because one thing is, another thing is, as, the sun is risen, therefore it is day. Thirdly, it may be argued that, because one thing is not, another is, as, it is not night, 
therefore it is they. Finally, it may be argued that, because one thing is not, another thing is not, as he is not a reasoning being, therefore he is not a man. These general remarks will suffice by way of introduction, and I will now proceed to details. Chapter 9 Every artificial proof consists either of indications, arguments, or examples. I am well aware that many consider indications to form part of the arguments. My reasons for distinguishing them are twofold. In the first place, indications, as a rule, come under the head of inartificial proofs, for a blood-stained garment, a shriek, a dark blotch, and the like, are all evidence analogous to the documentary or oral evidence and rumors. They are not discovered by the orator, but are given him with the case itself. My second reason was that indications, if indubitable, are not arguments, since they leave no room for question, while arguments are only possible in controversial matters. If, on the other hand, they are doubtful, they are not arguments, but require arguments to support them. The two first species into which artificial proofs may be divided are, as I have already said, those which involve a conclusion, and those which do not. The former are those which cannot be otherwise, and are called techmeria by the Greeks, because they are indications from which there is no getting away. These, however, seem to me scarcely to come under the rules of art. For, where an indication is irrefutable, there can be no dispute as to facts. This happens whenever there can be no doubt that something is being or has been done, or when it is impossible for it to be or have been done. In such cases, there can be no dispute as to the fact. This kind of proof may be considered in connection with past, present, or future time. For example, a woman who is delivered of a child must have had intercourse with a man, and the reference is to the past. When there is a high wind at sea, there must be waves, and the reference is to the present. When a man has received a wound in the heart, he is bound to die, and the reference is to the future. Nor again can there be a harvest where no seed has been sown, nor can a man be at Rome when he is at Athens, nor have been wounded by a sword when he has no scar. Some have the same force when reversed. A man who breathes is alive, and a man who is alive breathes. Some again cannot be reversed, because he who walks moves, it does not follow that he who moves walks. So too a woman, who has not been delivered of a child, may have had intercourse with a man. There may be waves without a high wind, and the man may die without having received a wound in the heart. Similarly, seed may be sown without a harvest resulting. A man who was never at Athens may never have been at Rome, and a man who has a scar may not have received a sword wound. There are other indications of a cota, that is, probabilities, as the Greeks call them, which do not involve a necessary conclusion. These may not be sufficient in themselves to remove doubt, but may yet be of the greatest value when taken in conjunction with other indications. The Latin equivalent of the Greek semeion is signum, a sign, though some have called it indicium, an indication, or vestigium, a trace. Such signs or indications enable us to infer that something else has happened. Blood, for instance, may lead us to infer that a murder has taken place, but blood stains on a garment may be the result of the slaying of a victim at a sacrifice, 
or of bleeding at the nose. Everyone who has a bloodstain on his clothes is not necessarily a murderer. But although such an indication may not amount to proof in itself, yet it may be produced as evidence in conjunction with other indications, such, for instance, as the fact that the man with the bloodstain was the enemy of the murdered man, had threatened him previously, or was in the same place with him. Add the indication in question to these, and what was previously only a suspicion may become a certainty. On the other hand, there are indications which may be made to serve either party, such as livid spots, swellings which may be regarded as symptoms either of poisoning or of bad health, or a wound in the breast which may be treated as a proof of murder or of suicide. The force of such indications depends on the amount of extraneous support which they receive. Hermagoras would include among such indications, as do not involve a necessary conclusion, an argument such as the following. Atalanta cannot be a virgin, as she has been roaming the woods in the company of young men. If we accept this view, I fear that we shall come to treat all inferences from a fact as indications. Nonetheless, such arguments are, in practice, treated exactly as if they were indications. Nor do the Aeropagites, when they condemned a boy for plucking out the eyes of quails, seem to have had anything else in their mind than the consideration that such conduct was an indication of a perverted character which might prove hurtful to many if he had been allowed to grow up. So, too, the popularity of Spurius Melius and Marcus Menlius was regarded as an indication that they were aiming at supreme power. However, I fear that this line of reasoning will carry us too far. For, if it is an indication of adultery that a woman bathes with men, the fact that she revels with young men or even an intimate friendship will also be indications of the same offense. Again, depilation, a voluptuous gait, or womanish attire, may be regarded as indications of effeminacy and unmanliness by anyone who thinks that such symptoms are the result of an immoral character, just as blood is the result of a wound. For anything that springs from the matter under investigation and comes to our notice may properly be called an indication. Similarly, it is also usual to give the names of signs to frequently observed phenomena, such as prognostics of the weather, which we may illustrate by the Virgilian, For wind turns Phoebe's face to ruddy gold, and The crow, with full voice, good for naught, invites the rain. If these phenomena are caused by the state of the atmosphere, such an appellation is correct enough, for if the moon turns red owing to the wind, her hue is certainly a sign of wind. And if, as the same poet infers, the condensation and rarefication of the atmosphere causes that concert of bird voices of which he speaks, we may agree in regarding it as a sign. We may further note that great things are sometimes indicated by trivial signs, witness the Virgilian crow. That trivial events should be indicated by signs of greater importance is, of course, no matter for wonder. End of chapter 9